Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me from the Batcave is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? What are you doing in the Batcave, man? I'm here in honor of Batman kicking Superman's butt this weekend. That's what I'm doing here. <laughs> no spoilers. So, no spoilers. I haven't actually seen the movie, but, you know, Batman, I'm on the Batman side, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm team Batman as well. Um, you know, we've, we've already purchased our tickets. Uh, we like to go out opening night of, you know, the big comic booky movies where all the crazy people come out and see the movie for the first time. I just call them my people. So we uh, usually go to our favorite restaurant in South Miami. It's called Whisk, in case you want to go there. They've got these like great bacon-wrapped stuffed dates. They're fantastic. Oh, and uh, we'll go do that, and we'll, we'll wait an hour line for the movie, and we'll go see how, uh, how good it is. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 30, man. It's at 30%. So I'm going to see it first and let me know how exactly it is. I'm a little, I was a little concerned. Yeah, we uh, we called Man of Steel last night uh, just to you know catch up, and it's it, it wasn't it wasn't good. So I'm, I don't have very low expectations for this one. So if I go in there and I see a couple good fight scenes, I'm good. So we'll we'll see what happens. So what you been doing, man? So on a on a little bit of a more um, exciting note, so I actually have been watching Daredevil that just came out on Netflix last week. I've actually completely finished the series. It's about 13 episodes. Totally binge-watched it, mostly over the weekend. Um, I gotta say, I'm, I'm definitely still a fan, man. I like, I like, um, I like the, the setup that's been kind of put into place. And, you know, I'm looking forward to some of the new characters that I think are going to come out in the, in the next one, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's, it's curious, man, how the, you know, they really made Punisher just a, a real s- central figure. And I think this is like the first incarnation of the Punisher that I actually like. He actually did the Punisher justice. You know, I think I think the actor did a good job. I think the story was was well presented, particularly for again a Netflix show. And again, you know, you're definitely going to see a lot more of him in, in some of these other Netflix, you know, Marvel adaptations. So, you know, I'm looking forward to see where it goes. That'd be really cool, man. So, I hear that we're going to be somewhere on April 2nd. Do you remember where that's going to be? Yeah, I think we're going to be in Orlando. I think Orlando. Yeah. Cooking. Yeah, we're both going to be Orlando Code Camp. We'll both be speaking, and that will be on April 2nd. That would be at uh, Seminole Community College. And if you're in town or around the area, uh, come drop by and say hi. We'd love to chat with you. Yeah, it's a great event, and I always have a good time you know, there. The One Tug group always do a really good job of putting that event on. So um, you know, if you're, if you're in the area, definitely come by. So who are we talking to today? So we actually have a return guest. You know, our buddy Nick Molnar is back in the show. Sweet. So Nick is now a program manager on Microsoft's cross-platform and open tooling team. And if you remember from before, he's the co-founder of Glimpse, an open source diagnostics and debugging tool. Living in Austin, Texas, Nick specializes in web performance, debugging, and development. In his spare time, Nick can be found cooking up a storm in the kitchen, hanging in with his wife, speaking at conferences, and working on other open source projects. This episode was recorded on February 16th, 2016. And now, our conversation with Nick Molnar. Now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So, Nick, it's been about a year since you've been on the show, and I feel like a lot has happened, right? You know, the last time you were on, we had you on with Mike Wood, and you guys were on Redgate, and, you know, it was actually episode five. Um, it was one of our first episodes we actually put out at um, the South Florida Code Camp. So I, I really wanted to, to get a chance to catch up with you and, and kind of hear about some of the things that you've been doing over the past year. Uh, so I am just over six months into my tenure at Microsoft, and it's it's been pretty awesome. You know, there was some worry going into Microsoft because you hear all kinds of stories. Uh, Microsoft is such a huge company that you see some people that you feel like never stop working, right? Like I look at guys like David Fowler who are answering Jabber questions at 3 in the morning, and I was like, oh. I don't know if, if I can support that and a family, uh, but I haven't really had anything but good things to say about my experience, my team, my manager. Uh, Microsoft has has uh, done a good job treating me and my family well, and uh, we appreciate them for that. So you actually came over to Microsoft because of your, your Glimpse project, right? 
and I believe previously you were you were sponsored by Redgate. So so what what exactly happened to for you guys to transition um, from Redgate over to Microsoft with the product? Yeah, we've been really lucky with the sponsorship opportunities that we've had with Glimpse. So we were at Redgate for two and a half, almost three years being sponsored to work on on Glimpse there. And we kind of reached a point where we had accomplished the original set of goals we set out for with Redgate. And as ASP.NET Core, as it's now called, uh, got farther and farther along, we were doing more and more interaction with the team because we are we're, tr- we're looking at those APIs and figuring out what that means for Glimpse. And it just kind of started to make sense that we were so closely interacting with them that maybe we should just be there. And so some conversations started up, and ultimately it ended up that Microsoft was willing to do kind of a very similar sponsorship arrangement. And so we were able to walk away from Redgate. Uh, you know, everybody was pretty amicable there, uh, thank- thanking them for everything that they had done and uh, looking forward to what the next uh, couple of years of sponsorship for Glimpse will look like. What was the experience like for you to... Hey, I've, I've created this baby and now it's, it's what I'm feeding my family on and it's what's what I'm using to provide for, you know, myself. Like, what is, what is, how does that feel for you? So I, I would say that kind of the story of Glimpse and those feelings is probably a, a multi-part play. And so <laughs> I'll, I'll kind of run through some of the highs and the lows as, as quickly as possible. Uh, when we launched Glimpse, we basically built, you know, kind of 90% of what was in the initial launch in, in about five weeks. And the reason why we did that is because we entered a contest uh, kind of foolishly using some smoke and mirrors to try to get in. That worked. We got in and then we realized, oh, no, we actually need to deliver on this false promise that we just showed everybody. And so we kind of sprinted pretty hard on nights and weekends for five weeks. And we're lucky enough to be kind of in the right place at the right time. And this is this, this concept of luck coming up over and over again for open source. Sure. Uh, but But we are in the room with guys like... Phil Hack and Scott Hanselman and John Galloway, and they very quickly saw the potential of Glimpse, and they uh, they, they chatted about us on their blog, and they, they put us on their podcast and on Channel 9, and I can remember, you know, we released it on April 11th of 2011. I can remember on like the 13th or 14th, I was finally at home, and I would just sit on the NuGet page for Glimpse and hit refresh over and over and over again, and every time I'd hit refresh, we'd jump up another 10, 15,000 downloads uh, it was just going gangbusters. And so we went from never really having an open source project to hun- having hundreds of thousands of downloads basically overnight. That's uh, crazy. So that, that was very, very exciting. It, it was in Vegas. I remember calling my wife in the middle of the night that night because I was so excited and telling her about how well things were going and how, how awesome that felt. Uh, so but the, the new shiny feeling of open source does begin to wear off after a little while. And so for the year or so after that, uh, you know, we were dealing with the support of hundreds of thousands of people who had downloaded Glimpse and making sure it works in all these different scenarios. And we actually didn't even get to really add too many features during that time because we were so busy with support. And I remember, you know, Saturday nights not going out with with friends because I was like, oh, no, I, I have this one bug I really need to figure out or waking up at two in the morning because my my phone was buzzing on my nightstand next to me because somebody tweeted and said, that they were having problems. And so there was actually uh, uh, quite a bit of time where I let the open source project kind of consume me and it got me a little depressed and I just kind of had to drudge through all of that. Um, so th- the next act in the in the play would be literally when I got a random email one day from a woman named Elizabeth who worked at Redgate saying, hey, we at Redgate like Glimpse, we like what you guys are doing, but it seems to be moving a little slowly and we want to know how we can get involved. And so I thought that that meant that they were going to, you know, contribute some source code or something like that. Never, never dreaming that in the back of their minds, they wanted to sponsor the project. And so, uh, you know, after chatting with them for a few weeks and kind of figuring out what their intent was and what they were hoping for, uh, that sponsorship was kind of a, uh, you know, a really big deal. And obviously then we're back on the top of the world and I feel like no, I'm no longer sacrificing you know, my family life or my social life in order to keep up the open source project. And so that was a great, you know, like I said, two and a half, three years working with them. They sent me all over the world speaking at different conferences. I got to go to Oslo and Belgium and London and Germany and Paris and uh, a whole bunch of places in North America as well. Uh, and so, you know, that was that was a really fun ride. It was, it was a great job. And so now that I'm at Microsoft, kind of like, 
you know, the, the current phase, we'll see how the future continues to play out. But it's kind of this surreal feeling. You know, the other day, uh, Anthony and I, Anthony is the is the guy who I started Glimpse with, who is also sponsored by Microsoft to work on Glimpse. We were walking around on campus in, in Redmond, and we're walking around Lake Bill, which is this little tiny pond that Bill Gates used to walk around, uh, as the story goes. And we're sitting there walking around saying, how on earth did we get here? <laughs> So, you know, sometimes for us, it's kind of we, we look back and it's kind of hard to believe. And I mean, you know, I can I can definitely say that we're lucky. And I think if you talk to a lot of open source projects, you will notice uh, particularly successful open source projects, uh, ones that have funding and things like that. You'll notice that there's this this theme that everybody feels very lucky. And, uh, you know, that that's probably true. But I also think that uh, luck looks an awful lot like hard work. And so. Now, when I kind of look back at that really down year when I was when I was wasting my Saturday nights working on the project, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's coming to fruition and paying off. Now, I'm not really sure that there certainly was a bit of a plan, and uh, we've we've far exceeded our plan and what we were hoping that Glimpse would enable for our careers. Uh, and so, you know, hopefully that the the value of the tool and the usefulness for the users is really what's propelling us forward from this point forward. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of the luck, too. I mean, that has to play a big part of it. But you hit a chord in something that was sorely missing from the whole ecosystem, the ASP.NET ecosystem. I mean, that that de- that debugging experience on the server side, that was non-existent. And I think you really struck a big chord with the community when you filled that hole. Yeah, I think that we were also in the right place at the right time as far as you know, we were one of the first packages on NuGet. So this was the, a big, we, you know, we didn't know that this was going to be the big channel, that this was going to be enabling so much open source in .NET. And we were an open source project when Microsoft was really starting to look for the community to start contributing. And so <clears throat> it's a little bit of a right place at the right time kind of a thing. But I'm, I mean, the idea originally spawned from my days as a cold fusion developer. And when I switched over to ASP.NET, I, Richie, I don't even know if you remember this, but I was still living in Florida, and you were the only .NET guy I knew. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I would yes. email you and be like, hey, I'm trying to do this debugging thing in the server, and I, I had it in Cold Fusion, and it's not anywhere to be found in .NET. I, I must be looking in the wrong places. And, and for months, I would wake up and be like, oh, this is what I need to search for in Google to find it. I've been searching with the wrong terms this whole time. Surely it's out there. And after about five years of not being able to find it, I realized this is something I need to build. So when you and Anthony first got together, you guys always think that this is going to be an open source project? Yeah, Anthony and I did always kind of consider this to be open source. You know, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the biggest reason is neither of us have comp sci degrees, right? We we both went to school and we did things that were, were close to computing and programming, but neither of us were like kind of like the traditionally educated developers. And so there's always been this like sense of awe and wonder that this thing that I was able to pick up because my uncle gave me a computer when I was 13 years old (laughs) and I could hack around on the internet reading, you know, posts on, um, on WebMonkey and, and wired and places like this and learn how to build a website and build an application and do all of this kind of stuff on my own to the fact that it's paying for my mortgage, right? And it's feeding my family. And I feel like all of those little things, all those little posts that people put on the internet that helped me to learn and propel me to being able to, uh, to feed my family. I, I always think that that's kind of like this, just this weird thing. I have no clue who those people were who wrote those posts, but I always felt like, <laughs> man, I need a way of doing that. Right. I need a way of giving back because, you know, it's, it's kind of incredible that I'm even able to to do what I do, uh, let alone the fact that somebody freely told me how to do it. So, uh, so that that was always kind of the the choice. Now, I mean, open source just kind of seemed to be a great way of doing that. Uh, you know, I think free was probably the key point there as far as our users, right? We wanted to make sure this was freely available, but free and open source don't necessarily go hand in hand. Sure. And then I think open source made a lot of sense to us. Because honestly, it was just the easiest way for Anthony and I to interact with each other, right? Once we got up on GitHub, it was free. If you build a project open source, you get great tooling support from all of the best tooling vendors that, that are out there for free. So it kept our costs low. And also, we it allowed us to work with other people, which, 
you know, I, people have different goals for when they do a project. But if, if one of your goals is to learn about some new tech or technique, then having other people involved who can can teach you is is awesome, right? So we were always able to kind of try to be the dumbest guys in the room, which isn't very difficult with us. You know, the reason why I want to ask so much about the whole open source, um, open sourcing of the project was, I find a lot of people today, a lot more than it was before, at least, are a lot more accepting of inter, like integrating open source into their projects. You know, I remember in some of my earlier jobs, it was it was just unheard of. Like, you want to download something off the internet and put it in the product and and have our users use it? Are you crazy? Like, you didn't write the code, you don't know who it came from, we don't have any support, any licensing, you know, and all of these types of questions. And, you know, coming forward a couple of years now, it, the, the, the environment is so much different, right? And the environment is so much more of a consuming environment, so much more of a, hey, I want to get involved and I want to, you know, I want to contribute and I want to do stuff. And I find it's interesting how our, the culture of software development has kind of changed, right? When before it was so much of a, it was like a bad thing, like you get slapped on the wrist, right? If you talked about like bringing in too much open source. Yeah, I mean, the, the culture change, I think, is a little bit... Uh, a requ- it was just a requirement, right? That the the industry was moving in a certain direction, and if you wanted to keep up, you had you have to kind of play play ball a little bit. I, I still I still think that the numbers are quite overwhelming uh, when you compare the ratio between consumers and contributors. Uh, you know, it's, it's maybe one in a hundred, I, I would guess, if not worse than that. Um, so, but but the numbers, you're right, Cecil. They're 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 growing and and they're getting better. You know, for us, one of the things that we wanted to do is we didn't want to have these middle managers who say, no, you can't use Glimpse because it's open source. And so we strategically chose our license. Well, truth be told, we screwed up the first license we chose. But then after that, we figured this thing out and we strategically chose our license so that it was the same license as ASP.NET MVC. And so that way, when users would come to us and say, oh, I would love to use this, but it's open source, I could say, well, are you using MVC? Yes. Well, then you've already approved the license required to use Glimpse. Like, there should be zero additional legal work. It's the exact same license. Nice. And so I think that um, the boiling down of open source licenses, uh, I mean, the ones that we're talking about today as the main ones were the ones that were around, you know, five or six years ago as well. They've, they've been pretty stable. Uh, but there's a lot more maturity around the licenses and there's tools like the OSI, the open source initiative, they kind of catalog the licenses and they give a mark of approval on them. And so, I mean, really, if you're looking at any, uh, realistic open source project these days, it's kind of boiling down to like, you know, four or five licenses. And there is one that some companies consider dangerous and we kind of know which one that is. And so if it's not that one, everything else is roughly okay as far as usage for most normal devs go now i'm not a i'm not a lawyer so you know don't don't take that as as uh uh, as approval to go ahead and use any open source license you want to but it it is a lot easier than it was i also think that there's this interesting thing that employers started to use open source not just for the tech but to find people right the number of times that uh, some recruiter calls you up and says, oh, well, I was looking at your your GitHub page or I was looking at your Stack Overflow profile and people realized that it was a way to get the really good companies to look at you. Uh, I think that really started to change the game. We're like, well, wow, if I start contributing to open source, maybe GitHub will notice me or maybe Facebook or Google will notice me and I really want to go work for one of those companies. It was the motivating factor that was needed to get people to contribute more. And then that just kind of built the snowball effect. And I think you bring, you bring up a really good point. You know, from a from a career advancement perspective, it's it's a tremendous opportunity for you to again not only just get seen, but for you to get experience, for you to kind of learn and and kind of just see where where things are going in terms of technology. So you you talked about the the Glimpse team of Infinity. What is it like for you managing Glimpse to have to, I guess, work with and manage? essentially all of the contributions from, you know, this army of developers you have now? It can be challenging at times. I think the biggest problem with, I think the biggest problem with having lots of contributors is that there's this kind of blessing and a curse that comes along with it, right? A lot of projects 
would love to have anybody contribute anything to them. And then when you get to a certain stage, you're, you you kind of have a roadmap in mind, and you have this game plan, and you're trying to drive towards that thing, right? You're focused on some feature. But then you have some contributors who show up, and they want to contribute maybe what's a really good feature, but it's nowhere in your roadmap right now. It's not anything that you're focused on. And so every single time something shows up, you have to make the decision well, do I want to go off of the the route that's been charted towards, you know, milestone X and accept this feature? Or do we want to wait? And if we wait, we don't want to offend that developer necessarily by saying, hey, this feature isn't good enough or we're going to wait to take it in. And so there's kind of a delicate balance of of, of ego and roadmap and and making sure that all that drives together properly. So that's, that's that's the most difficult part with people showing up. You know, I, I kind of use this analogy sometimes when I talk to people about this. As, uh, when I grew up, I, I grew up in South Florida, right? So, so this is how I've known Richie for way too long. Uh, and, and so, you know, we would used to go out to South Dade Park and we would play basketball. And there are kind of two kinds of kids that showed up to play these pickup games of basketball. There were the kids who just wanted to have fun, and that meant – making sure everybody was included. So you're there, you're playing your five-on-five game, some new kid shows up and is just standing on the sidelines watching. There's one kind of person who would say, hey, this is all about making sure everybody's included and having fun. I'll even I'll even take a break so that the new guy has a chance to play in the game. And, and that's a really good model for open source, I think, right? If, if your job is to build community and you're trying to give back and you're trying to learn from others, being the guy who makes sure everybody is included or a girl who makes sure everybody's included is a great model. But then there's other kinds of people who are on the same basketball court and they're about winning the game, right? They have a goal and they want to make sure they beat the other team. So they might not just take the new guy on the sidelines and bring him into the fold because they have no clue if he's a good player or not. But instead they're strategically trying to make sure they only have the best people working there because they're trying to make sure they win the game. And, and truth be told, you might kind of like flip-flop. You might be like, let's just have some fun. And then you realize, no, this just got serious. Let's buckle down and make sure we win the game. And so I think the same is true for open source. You know, I can be hyper-focused on my goal at hand, kind of winning, whatever winning is for, for my project. And that might mean I just I don't want to work with people or I only work with a couple of people that I've explicitly handpicked. And there are certainly projects like that. You'll go and you'll contribute to them and they'll just never respond to your pull request. Or maybe you just want to include everybody. And so uh, we, we tend to kind of land more in the include everybody world. And so if, if a pull request comes in and it doesn't quite meet up to our standards, uh, as long as the feature generally is on our roadmap, we'll work with the developer to make sure that it, that, uh, it lives up to our standards. It, you know, it has all the unit tests required. Whatever our current set of uh, gating policies are at that time, we'll, we'll try to get the developer to, to get it to there. One of the things that we've spoken about before in the show is how important mentoring is for, for young developers, right? And I kind of feel it's almost the same thing with people that are just getting into open source because I find for most developers, and, and even if you're just out of college or you're maybe a couple of years into the game, open source can be a little intimidating for some people, right? It's, you know, you see some of these very high-profile projects on there like, you know, the Core CLR and LLVM and, you know, some of these major projects and, you're like, hey, this is really cool, but I don't even know where I would begin to go into doing this thing, right? So so what do you have in terms of recommendations or any type of suggestions for people that are, hey, I want to get into open source, but I'm really scared, I'm terrified, I don't know where to start, and I don't want to go in and make a fool of myself. Like, what do I, what do, I do, and how do I approach this? I, first, I want to encourage the listener, if they're in that position, that they're not alone. Even me as a, I'll, I'll, I'll quote unquote call myself a seasoned open source veteran. I've been running a project for six years. I've contributed to a bunch of other projects. Every time I show up at a new project, it's scary all over again. It might be a new tech or a new pattern or something that I'm just not that familiar with. There's very few projects that I show up to and say, oh, slam dunk, I know I can contribute to this and that like I will actually be able to add value instantly. Uh, and so... That fear might not ever go away. It kind of reminds me, like, you know, Microsoft is probably my my seventh job in my career. And it doesn't matter how many years of experience. I've been doing web development for 18 years now. 
every time I show up at the new job on the first day, I'm worried that they'll find out I'm a fraud or something like that, right? This is imposter, imposter syndrome all over again. Uh, so if you're in that boat, don't worry. Everybody feels that way. Now, how, yep. do you, how do you actually break in and get started is a really tough problem to solve. Uh, I would first of all say go identify a handful of projects that you're interested in or at least a set of technologies that you're interested in. Maybe you're trying to learn F-sharp. Go find some F-sharp project. Uh, there's millions and millions of open source projects, so you need to have some kind of a forcing function to narrow them down to something you're interested in. Uh, once you've done that, you know, just just kind of uh, start picking around, looking at some issues, looking at the source code. Maybe you're not even worried about contributing to it yet, just understanding how it works. So you're reading the code. Reading code is a really good idea. Now, I think the truth of the matter is that all of that advice tends to run dry when people really try it. And so a couple of years ago, I published a, a post on my blog um, encouraging open source projects to label uh, and keep specific issues for people who are in this situation. And uh, I, I, I recommended that people tag these issues, jump in. Others have uh, kind of picked up on the same technique and they use other labels like uh, up for grabs or help wanted or you do it, beginner friendly, things like this. Uh, and so basically the idea is that any kind of jump in issue or an issue that that uh, fits this criteria would be a pretty small issue right you would expect a, a dev to be able to complete the work for that issue in a couple of nights worth of work uh, that that issue is pretty much standalone you're not integrating with any other moving pieces in the project uh, and that the issue is very well described for what you're looking to get out of the implementation and some you know maybe some pointers to where and how it should be implemented so somebody new can just show up and, and get working right away. Uh, what, what's important about these issues is not just how they're defined, but what they're not trying to do and what the intent behind them is not. So um, these these shouldn't be issues that like the core team just doesn't want to implement themselves. Like, oh, Anthony, I don't want to do this. So we're going to call this a jump in issue. And we'll let somebody else do it. Like this isn't like the cast offs of what the team doesn't want to build. Um, these aren't... Uh, items that are necessarily built for junior developers, right? Because like I said, somebody new to open source doesn't mean they're a junior developer. You can have an amazing developer who's just deciding to get involved in open source. And so a jump in issue shouldn't necessarily be targeted at juniors. It shouldn't be used as kind of like a fizz buzz test or, or a hazing activity, right? These are just honest to goodness things that you've taken the time to make sure are well described. And so um, my blog post is up on my blog at nickcodes.com describing this. Uh, more interesting is uh, my buddy Keith Dalby, who I believe is speaking at South Florida Code Camp this year. Uh, he put up this website called upforgrabs.net. That's up-for-grabs.net. And basically, it's a listing of all of the different projects who kind of believe in this philosophy of having some of these kinds of issues. And so if you really are just trying to figure out a place to get started, I say go to upgrabs.net, uh, filter down by the language you're interested in working in, and you'll see a whole bunch of projects that have issues specifically designed for you to get involved. So so moving forward a little bit, I know you had another big change happen over the past year. You and your uh, wife decided to adopt a baby. We did. Little, our little girl, Hope. That's her nice. name. Nice. That's a beautiful name. Thank so you. How did you, so could you tell us a little bit about what was that like? Like, why did you decide to adopt and, and what has it been like for you the past couple of months having her with you? So Hope will be nine months old in three days and she is a blast. Um, she's so cute. Uh, she's, she's starting to get to the point where she can, you know, mimic little things that we do. Like the other day, my wife taught her to clap her hands and, oh, yeah? um, I get her to stick out her tongue at me. And, uh, I'm trying to get her to do high five, but she instead she points. She just points with one finger out. So we do high ones because high fives aren't quite there yet. Um, kind of like ET. Uh, but but it's been good. So the adoption process is uh, it, it depends on where you live and where you're trying to adopt from. So we adopted Hope domestically from a woman in Florida while we were living in New York. And every state has different 
laws uh, around how adoption is governed there. And so uh, the state of Florida and the state of Texas just so happen to have some of the more um, uh, some, some of the laws that are a little bit more favorable towards the adoptive parents, whereas New York had laws that were more favorable towards the birth parents, uh, at least in the research that we had done. And so we decided to adopt from Florida, even though we were living in New York, which made it a little bit more challenging, but certainly easier than somebody who's doing an international adoption out of, you know, let's say Russia or China or something like that. Um, and so... You know, the, the, the process is really kind of interesting because what you end up doing is you, you find a adoption agency that you're willing to work with. And there, there's a bunch of them, right? And what an adoption agency is, it's kind of a cross between a lawyer and a matchmaking service. And mm-hmm. so uh, basically they have uh, women who are looking to put their baby up for adoption and parents who are looking to adopt a baby. And then there's always a lawyer there who can help facilitate all the legal work that has to happen to terminate parental rights and, uh, and, and sign over the new parental rights. So we actually chose an agency in Tampa that my, uh, my wife had two brothers adopted from. We kind of felt like that was comforting to us that this adoption uh, agency had already helped grow her family. And so we would kind of continue to use them. So what ends up, ends up happening there is first you have to get permission to adopt. Now, uh, the permission process took us about 14 months. It's, it's very rigorous. I actually, uh, have had in the past a, a top secret level government clearance. And it was, I'm not joking. It was easier to get that clearance than it was to get permission from the state of New York to adopt. Wow. Oh, no. Jeez. Every single portion of your life is scrutinized you know, criminal records and, and, um, medical histories and financial histories. And, you know, they, they want to make sure everything is, is good to go. Uh, and so it took us about 14 months, uh, for that to happen. And then, uh, once we got the approval, our, our name was put in at the agency and then we wait. And what we're waiting for is for some girl to come in and pick us. We don't get to pick the baby. And, uh, so we actually kind of had, um, our, our profile, you literally make a book, um, that it kind of shows who you are, what your family life is like, where you live, et cetera, et cetera. So, so these, these mothers can kind of see where they're going to be placing their baby. And so we had, uh, two, two women look at our book and did not select us for, for various reasons. Uh, the, the first girl, gave the baby to another couple who had been trying to adopt for much longer than we had. And she felt like they should get the first chance, which was fine. Um, and then, um, hope's mom selected us and, uh, it was a little surprising because I think that she decided to, uh, adopt her baby a little late in the game. So we were told I was actually in Florida for South Florida, uh, for South Florida code camp. when we found out that we had been selected, it was uh, almost one year ago today on, on the date of this recording that we found out where four days passed. And, uh, you know, we were told that we were selected, but it was surprising because she was seven months pregnant. So instead of like, hey, you find out you're going to have a baby, you have nine months to prepare. We had eight weeks. Oh, wow. And so that was like, whoa, OK, uh, time to get on this thing. We really got to hustle. Right. And so uh, uh, so we did. Um, you know, some of the more challenging parts, right? If we're going to, uh, if we get into this a little bit is, is really the application where you, you, you select what type of baby you would like it. It it felt a little perverse to me in some ways, to be honest, it felt like I was on some, some e-commerce website and I was customizing something, right? So like, (laughs) do you want, do you want a male or a female? Um, do you want your baby to have parents of you know, these different races, are you okay with Caucasian or Hispanic or uh, African-American, right? And all of these things that you, that you don't get to pick when you naturally have a baby. I mean, I, I guess the, the parents' races, maybe you can get a little control over that. Uh, but, you know, you don't get to, get to worry about boy or girl, right? You get what you get. Uh, and so we kind of felt like we should, we should get what we get, right? So we selected boy or girl. Um... The really tough questions, uh, especially for my wife and I, we're, we're pretty straight-laced people. We're, 
you know, my wife drinks her wine from time to time. But other than that, we, we're pretty much we're off of the alcohol. We don't smoke. We're not doing drugs. And and the matrix you have to fill out where you say, which drugs are you OK with the birth mother doing while pregnant with your child? And how often can they do it? And you're like, oh, well, OK, I guess it's all right if they have a little bit of alcohol, you know, maybe, you know, five times over the nine months. And I guess it's OK if they smoke cigarettes a couple of times. OK. And. Oh, marijuana. Okay, I guess a couple of times, and then it just gets harder and harder when you start looking at cocaine and heroin and PCP wow. and horse tranquilizers. And you're like, why is horse tranquilizer on this list? That's crazy. Uh, so you know that that's kind of an emotional roller coaster because you're going through all of this and you really realize how broken and downtrodden some of these situations that these babies come from, and so. It gives me a lot of of pride to know um, that we were able to put hope into a good situation. Um, and hopefully, you know, uh, she, she's certainly in a loving home, and hopefully that that will help her out um, in her life. And 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 all of that to also say that what her mother did for us was also a huge gift. She loves her little girl just as much as we do, um, and so it's kind of this. This very interesting relationship where you have somebody who has given you so much. So, Nick, I want to ask you, how is your, how do you feel like your life has changed both emotionally and even from like how you are day to day now that you have hope in your life? Well, so hope was born within a couple of weeks. I started working at Microsoft. And a couple of weeks after that, we moved from New York City to Austin, Texas. Well, when you do change, you do change. I do all of the change. Yeah. <laughs> I did the same thing back. Uh, I graduated college, started. I left the startup I was at to work for Lockheed Martin and married my wife literally with all in the same month um, 11 years ago. So, yeah, we do it all at once. So, to be honest with you, Cecil, it's kind of difficult for me to pick apart those three different changes because they all came together. I can tell you because I work from home. I'm very fortunate to work from home for Microsoft. Microsoft feels the most stable of all of those changes. You know, pe people often ask me, well, what's it like working from home for Microsoft? And I'm like, do you know Anthony Vanderhorn? They're like, yeah. I'm like, it's like talking to him on Skype all day long. Right? <laughs> I'm doing the same thing that I was doing at Redgate because I'm working from home and I'm working on my product. And Microsoft certainly has additional benefits and, and additional resources available to us that kind of change the equation a little bit. But for the most part, that feels similar. Uh, moving from New York City, where we were living in a one-bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side, and that apartment was my office when my wife was gone from work, um, to, to Austin, where my wife is now staying at home with the baby, and I'm in my own enclosed room. I have an office at the door and my daughter has an office and my doggy has a yard. Uh, I feel like that's probably been the biggest change. Uh, I, I loved New York. I, I loved my time there. I think it was a great career accelerator for us. Um, but I think the, the change of kind of just being a little bit in the suburbs, kind of growing up in an environment very similar to the one that I grew up in myself, that's kind of been the, the, the big change, right? That's what I'm really feeling and noticing. I don't know a lot of people when they they have a child, they really struggle with sleep and things like that. Uh, but my wife has been a saint and she said, you know, honey, since I'm not working anymore and, and you're the one working during the day, I'll make sure that I'm the one working at night. And so uh, over the last nine months, anytime the baby has cried in the middle of the night or something like that, uh, my wife's been the one to get up and take care of her with the exception of maybe like three times. I just, I stay in bed. So that the, some of the hard parts of parenting have been lifted off of my shoulders by her. Wow. That's amazing, dude. That is, that's crazy. Cause I, I mean, I was in the same boat when both our kids, my wife wasn't working, but I was getting up. I usually took the first shift, you know, anything kind of before one or two, yeah. I would just stay up and work and whatever. And if someone woke up, then I, I do the first changing and then she would take the second one. But we would alternate after that, right? But man, that's that's a that's a good deal, man. That's a good deal. <laughs> I, I'm not complaining about my deal at all. So what's how's it been like uh, moving from New York City to Austin? I love New York City. I There's a small part of me that wants to move back there one day, maybe go spend uh, early retirement there. I don't want to, I don't really want to end my life in New York. Um, 
certainly want to go on vacations there and whatnot. So I lived there for almost eight years. And, and New York is awesome for a lot of different reasons. Um, now, we, we kind of left New York of our own choosing. I could have continued to stay and work from home for Microsoft there. They didn't want me in Austin or anything like that. And so when we left, it was a decision to leave. Then the next question was, where do we go? And so we looked at a bunch of different places. We looked at Seattle and we looked at San Francisco and we looked at going back to Florida, et cetera, et cetera. And we ended up choosing Texas because we felt like Austin had enough culture in it. So it's, it's the live music capital of the world. There's all these kind of quirky things that are happening here that we felt like we weren't losing all of the culture that was in New York. It has a fantastic food scene, so we knew we were going to get great barbecue and Tex-Mex. And if you know me, you know that those are very high uh, priorities in my life. <laughs> um, so we were able to come here and get that. Uh, and also, Austin has this great tech scene going on right now. I'd, I'd probably say that it's it's you know a top five type tech scene in in the U.S. And so uh, that means that I can go out literally every night of the week and go to some different meetup group, and and there's there's always people to talk to about tech, and I meet people who are in the tech industry all the time here. Um, so you know, I think that's part of the reason why we why we chose to come here, and and it's really it's really paying off. So, but but like <laughs> here here's here's my controversial statement about Austin. I, you know, I knew that in Austin I'd be able to get better Tex-Mex and better barbecue food than I could get in New York. But what I've been shocked is to find is that all of the food here has been amazing. I've only had one bad experience in like four or five months. And the pizza in Austin, I actually say is better than the pizza in New York. What? What? See? Exactly. Oh my gosh. Exactly. Head blown. <laughs> exactly. So here, here's the thing, right? Like if you're willing to go out of your way to Brooklyn, you're going to go to DeFaro or one of the famous pizzerias, you're going to get some really good pizza in New York. And I would probably put the best pizza in New York above the best pizza in Austin. But that's not Chicago. Oh, well, okay. Chicago is a whole other thing. I'm not comparing Chicago because I, I, I like my Chicago pie as well. Um, but here's the thing. Like, that's not the way that you live your life, right? Like, you don't spend every meal going to the very best place all the way across town. You go to your local pizzeria or diner or whatever it is the kind of food that you want to get. And so there's two or three neighborhood places here next to me that make pizza that's five times better than the 10 neighborhood places that were next to me in New York. And so, yeah, I say Austin pizza better than New York pizza. But yeah, Richie, I agree with your sneeze. Lou Malnati's is where it's at. Yeah, yeah. Even Giordano's um, I'm a fan of. And in, in a pinch, Uno's will do very fine as well, you know? So... <laughs> Uh, but you know what? Since we're since we're talking about food, I do want to tell you guys about something that I made in Texas that was inspired by New York the other day that I thought was a rousing success. Uh, my family was in town, and my mom made a special request that I would make some burgers. And I said, "Okay, I'll make burgers for you, mom." So I went to the store as I usually do, looking for inspiration, and and they had some fresh made pretzel buns. I was like, "Oh, I love pretzel buns. Let's go ahead and like lean into this, and I'll use that for the burger." And I found some some nice pastrami and so I did some sauerkraut and I kind of did like this, this play on a pastrami sandwich burger kind of thing. So now I have to make some fries to go with it. I'm like, how can I take plain old regular fries and kind of like deli them up a little bit. And so what I ended up doing was I made my own pastrami spice blend and I mixed it into this light tempura batter. I spiralized the fries to make, you know, like, um, uh, curly fries. I battered them and fried them, and I served them with mustard aioli. So they were pastrami fries with a mustard sauce, and they were good. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's it's one of the few times in my life where I've made something and thought, why haven't I found this in some restaurant menu somewhere else before? This is good. This is easy. This should have been done before. So I'm just waiting for you to put out Nick's cookbook. <laughs> when is that coming? Uh, so I I don't think that you're actually saying that in jest because I don't think I've known you long enough, Cecil, for you to know that I actually started a cookbook about uh, eight months before Glimpse came out. And uh, that's what I was trying to do. I was going to get a cookbook published. And then Glimpse came out and took up all my time. And so I've had lots of friends who said, so when's your cookbook coming out, Nick? When's your cookbook coming out, Nick? Oh, uh, really? I honestly, I honestly had no idea. <laughs> I, know, I know. You just hit a sore spot and you didn't know about it. Yeah. So, Nick, it's 2016. We're pretty much at the beginning of the year. What do you have that you're looking forward to for the rest of uh, rest of this year? That's 
That's a good one. I, there's a lot of obvious ones, right? I'm 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 looking forward to settling into the new home. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the next phase of of my daughter's kind of life as she she becomes a one and becomes a toddler. Uh, so so 2015, I started working on Pluralsight courses, and so I've released two of them that are both doing uh, decently for me. So I have one called Tracking Real World Web Performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is about uh, an hour and 45 minutes of me diving into all the different metrics that are involved in web performance, which ones you should care about and when. And that's the first course. And the second course is called uh, Web Page Test Deep Dive, which is kind of a soup to nuts uh, survey of everything that Web Page Test, which is an awesome performance testing service, can do and how you can host it yourself and and – Literally, I go through every switch and dial and, and the piece of software and explain it all. Uh, so, so I started with that. I'm going to change focuses a little bit in 2016. And uh, instead of talking about performance, I'm going to start looking into uh, a little bit more about mobile web. I feel uh-huh. like the mobile web is at a place right now where it's really about to – like the things that are going to happen in 2016, I think, are going to set the mobile web to – become a bit more of a competitor again with, with native apps. And so that's got me really excited. So I've been building a mobile web app and I'm going to do a Pluralsight course about uh, one of the key technologies that I'm using to build that called service worker. Oh, okay. And, uh, That'd be cool. And I, I, and I don't drink, I, I don't drink alcohol very much. Um, I don't, I don't do like coffee or any of the other beverages that people really care about. I'm not into, but my thing is craft soda. So the app that I'm building and I and I will release independent of the Pluralsight course is basically like untapped if you're familiar with that. We right, can right, keep right, track right. of what beers you're drinking. Untapped for soda is what I'm building. And it's oh. called Soda Soda Popped. Uh, and so that that's something that I'm pretty excited about. I've been I've been tweaking the design and the, and getting the family involved. My wife is doing some of the photography for it and whatnot. So um that that's kind of cool uh, and exciting. That's gonna be pretty cool. We'd like to thank Nick for being a guest on the show. It was great having the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at podcast. You could follow me at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jars. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up for our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have developer and Aurelia team member, Mr. Ashley Grant. And we'll actually have a guest host, Julie Lerman. Each other. They, they um, have comedians in Cars and Coffee too, right? I yeah, heard. Jerry Seinfeld started Comedians in Cars Getting <laughs> Was Coffee. Was that a spinoff of I think, your Yeah, I think he stole the idea. So You should sue him for that, buddy. I should. Maybe I get one of his sweet Porsches. So... <laughs> Julie Learman plays Joris. It's going to be fun. Yeah, that's going to be a great show. So see you guys next week. And uh, let me know how Batman is versus Superman is. Yeah. That doesn't look good, dude. 30%, man. 30%. 30%. I mean, if you double it, that's still lower than the, uh, the lowest Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. 30%. Not a good start, DC. It's not a good start to your cinematic universe. Yeah, dude. You ready bought tickets, man? Have fun, let me know. <laughs> Peace. We want to thank you for listening to Away from the Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego!
Central Texas is barbecue country, right? This is the home to the best barbecue in, in the world, in, in my opinion. And so I did. I went out and purchased an offset smoker. And so, you know, I, I did a smoked turkey and sweet potato waffles for Thanksgiving this year. And I, I smoked some ribs the other day for uh, some, some guests that were in town. And so the whole idea of, of smoking, like really smoking, that's, that's something that's new and taking off for me being here. You, you know, just from that statement, we just lost every listener in Memphis and St. Louis. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Well, you didn't need them anyway. They're eating like the shredded pork <laughs> stuff and vinegar and sugar sauce. <laughs> Heinz, Heinz makes a sauce that has those same ingredients in it. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh, boy. Oh, the, the hatred of the people are going to come up to your door, man. It's going to be intense. <laughs> yeah, when you guys dox me, I might have to give you somebody else's address. <laughs> Oh, so you moved to Oregon. That's interesting. <laughs> on a farm. Yeah, yeah, we are on a farm in Hillsboro, Oregon. Oregon now. <laughs> For those of you not catching the inside joke, that is where my where my business partner Anthony lives. Well, he, he's also, Anthony. We, he's Australian. He doesn't he doesn't get American food that well yet. I'm I'm I, I'm thoroughly embarrassed every time we go to a Mexican restaurant and he honestly orders a fajita or a quesadilla. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Anthony, I have so much to teach you. They have any kangaroo on this. Can I get kangaroo? <laughs> so speaking of Anthony, you know, uh, we should have him on the show, um, Cecil. Sure. Oh, wait. Just ask. No, let's, no, no, let's just have his wife. He's more, she's more interesting anyway. Yeah, what, what about his wife? I've never met his wife. Cat's a blast, man. Yeah. She's really, really cool. You should have her on the show. That will make her day. Sure. <laughs> let's have them both on the show. That'll be a, no, that'll no, be no, a first. No, just cat. Just no, I'm cat? just joking. Sorry. Just cat. Yeah, that's right. Just cat. That's right. Just cat. Okay, let's do that.